Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no definitive knowledge on the topics I talk about. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself before sharing. If you find that I was wrong about something, let me know so that I can correct myself. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I do swear, and I don't bleep that stuff out. So listener discretion is advised. episode 77 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. Today, I'm a bit upset that my home area has once again made it onto shows like The Friendly Atheist. Shame on you, Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Accommodating Christian bigots by covering up LGBT sections of your human rights exhibits. That segment next. Also on today's episode, I talk about the latest 3D print house concept, an update on the avian flu, fertilizing the ocean to store CO2, and how we may be able to adapt some fruit crops to the droughts of our future. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. So this involves a story from my hometown that ranges from 2015 to 2022. Here in Winnipeg, we have the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. A museum for human rights, which has the unfortunate history of participating in human rights violations. Beginning from January 2015 to the middle of 2017, Schools and classes could request that content not be included in tours at the museum. Regular tours would be adjusted for these schools to keep certain things out. It's about human rights. What the fuck do they want to leave out? I'll give you one guess. You got it. Gay stuff. The worst part? LGBTQ plus staff were asked to skip over and not speak about gay content. Can you imagine being one of those employees? How infuriatingly insulting. Also, it's a fucking museum. If you don't want them to see what's in there, then don't take the kids there. What the fuck are schools with bigoted attitudes doing scheduling tours at a fucking human rights museum anyway? People like them are the whole reason we need a place like the Canadian Museum for Human Rights in the first place. Word got out. People were obviously outraged. A spokesperson for the museum told CBC that they would no longer be adapting any of their educational programs at the request of schools. As it should be? Hiding history like that? What are we, the U.S.? Shame on you! Your museum represents fucking human rights and you just want to cover up what doesn't suit some people. That's not okay. So they stopped allowing for special requests with tours. And then they made it worse. I'm serious. What the fuck, right? 
after they stopped the special requests, these schools still booked tours but would request a staff member of the museum be assigned to physically block the alcove in the Canadian Journeys exhibit, which contains photos of same-sex couples in the shape of a cake, along with a few symbols of equality for non-straights. And again, LGBTQ plus staff were involved. Gay people were instructed to stand in front of the gay exhibits because of how they could offend some viewers. How did nobody see how awful that was other than the poor staff being put in that horrible situation? Imagine your boss saying to you, these guys think people like you are icky, so please block them from seeing that people like you actually exist, okay? Fuck no. So in 2020, some staff took the brave step of speaking out and taking the museum to court. The names of all the schools and groups involved in the special requests and guards for certain exhibits were a part of the court documents. The museum, in an attempt to show that they were taking this seriously and intended to be open and honest about the whole thing, provided the court documents to CBC. Two of the schools involved sued the museum and CBC to keep their names out of any public releases. These schools, which are under one banner, fought CBC and the Canadian Museum for Human Rights in federal court to remove their names from the documents before they could be released. The schools were citing concerns of bad press, which they claimed would make it harder for them to find and keep staff, increase enrollments, and collect donations. They worried that the impact of having their names released could last years. I'm sorry, but if the truth about your schools will make people want to stay away from them, then the truth should be told to fucking everyone. They know this is a bad look. They know they're showing their bigotry and the fact that they're trying to hide the reality of same-sex marriage from the youth in their schools. While the court case was ongoing, this request to rename Anonymous was respected. But that case has ended. In November, I think. The judge has declared that there is no reason for the court to conceal any more than absolutely necessary from the public court records. The public has a right to this information, so the entirety of the 3,000-page document has been released. The schools who did not want to be named are Sterling North Stonewall of Stonewall, Manitoba, and Sterling West Pemina of St. Vincent, Minnesota. They are both under the Christian One School Global banner. One School Global was established by members of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church for students from families within the church. They claim to have 50,000 members in Australia, New Zealand, Europe, the UK, and the Americas. They are a very exclusive community with a strong doctrine of separation. The reason for the exclusive schools is that families within the church do what they can to stay separate from others in their surrounding community. Sounds like a cult. Acts like a cult. Refuses to expose its youth to the realities of the real world. Cult. This is an organization which paid money to conduct mail and advertising campaigns against same-sex marriage. Seriously. What the fuck are you doing at a human rights museum? And of all the schools and organizations named in these documents, guess which ones are being talked about? Guess which ones everyone knows the names of now? Just these two. The ones who tried to hide from the truth. Good. I'm happy to say they didn't just lose this fight to hide their bigotry, but the judge declared that both the museum and CBC were entitled to have their legal costs paid by the schools as well. There's been a lot of backlash since the initial announcements about these very poorly thought out practices came out. 
Pride Winnipeg cut ties with the museum. Plans to hold a welcome reception at the museum for Canada Pride celebrations were cancelled and that event was relocated. The LGBT Purge Fund at first said it was reconsidering their collaboration with the museum, but have since decided to continue. They've been working towards a major exhibit that focuses on how LGBT federal government employees were persecuted and discriminated against in what is now known as the Purge. Glenn Murray resigned from the museum's Board of Friends, saying these actions were a betrayal of its mandate. Federal Heritage Minister Stephen Gilbos said, quote, an institution like the Canadian Museum for Human Rights should not be perceived as condoning homophobia or engaging in self-censorship. Its role is to expose the realities of those whose voices have been silenced, not to silence them even more. Unquote. That was well worded. Now they claim to be working to be better. And I really fucking hope they are. The Purge exhibit is one thing to look forward to, and I believe I read that an exhibit of two spirit stories is also in the works. The museum hired a lawyer who is an expert in women's and black studies and mediation. They were to lead a review of all complaints and racism and other forms of discrimination with the end goal of creating an action plan to be better. Just don't censor your shit and don't agree to hide exhibits for any group for any reason. Nothing in the Canadian Museum for Human Rights should ever have any reason to be hidden. It's fucking reality. If you can't handle it, don't go. And remember to be skeptical, damn it. Cornell researchers have been collaborating with colleagues at the College of Engineering on research into eco-friendly building materials as well as the potential for concrete to store methane. While I haven't seen any results about the storing methane yet, they have tested a hybrid design for 3D printing houses and appear to have been successful. The goal was to increase the applicability, sustainability, and cost efficiency of 3D printing residential and multifamily buildings in the U.S. They combined conventional wood framing with 3D printed concrete to build a two-story family home and are completing the first building of this size to be 3D printed in the United States. The wood framing was acquired from a forest monoculture, making all the wood completely renewable. The monocultures have their own issues, which I'll discuss on a future episode. Also, there are travel emissions for obtaining the wood as well. The cement, however, is locally sourced and includes industrial byproducts such as slag or fly ash. Slag being a byproduct of smelting ores and used metals, and fly ash being a very fine powder from coal combustion. Making use of another industry's waste is almost always a good thing. This is shown to have very little waste compared to regular building methods. And this latest demonstration has shown that it can produce structurally efficient buildings, which will be easily replicable. The printer itself is something to see at 18 meters long, nine meters wide, and nine meters tall. One of the biggest challenges with printing a building with a second story was the moving of the printer. This massive machine has to be raised and placed pretty specifically in order to continue after the first floor. 3D printers, as most of us understand them, stay in one place. From what I've been able to find and read about printing houses, this is the first time this kind of move was attempted, so good for them. I didn't look into how they managed the move, but apparently they did. Next, of course, will be to scale even larger. The researchers want to show the world that well-designed, high-performance architecture can be built in this way. I find the potential for mass-customized architectural components really exciting to imagine. The current avian flu is still going on, and as of November 30th, there were already more than 52 million birds dead in the U.S. because of it. 
The outbreak of 2014 was at the time considered the biggest animal health emergency in U.S. history. And this one is much worse. Millions of domestic birds had to be culled in order to contain it. This version has evolved to spread more quickly and efficiently, and so far has shown a 100% mortality rate in poultry. It's also mutated to not die down when temperatures warm up, as previous lineages seem to do. 46 states in the U.S. are currently affected, and of course, the longer it exists in the wild, the more of a chance it has to evolve into something that could eventually do damage to humans. On episode 73, I talked about this flu and how it's getting into the mammal populations more than before. So many wild birds are infected that it's almost expected for the carnivores to eventually get it too. As usual though, birds as a whole are the worst hit. Apparently vultures have been hit pretty bad, and 5,000 pelicans died in Peru last month. And over the summer, the UK lost some of its most important seabird colonies. With waterfowl and shorebirds infected, the disease is allowed to travel. When they migrate, they take the disease with them and put a whole new area of wildlife at risk. So why aren't farm birds vaccinated? Well, there's a couple reasons for this. One is cost. It's simply cheaper to cull a bunch of birds than to have them all vaccinated. But that's not really the main reason, believe it or not. The main reason is export, where the most money can be made. You see, in testing our products, other countries cannot tell the difference between an infected bird and a vaccinated bird. The disease is identified by the antibodies it carries. But when vaccinated, the birds make those antibodies without getting the disease. So vaccinated birds will have the test results of infected birds, and foreign countries will refuse them. This keeps pretty much everyone from vaccinating poultry everywhere, because everyone wants to be able to export. The only way to go forward with vaccinations with the way the current world trade works would be if there were an agreement from all participating countries to vaccinate all farm birds. And that would be a massive undertaking. This latest avian flu has driven up prices and will continue to do so. Eggs and the birds we eat will be hit the hardest, particularly my daughter's favorite, turkey. So it turns out this is going to be one of those short ones. I really thought there'd be a lot more to this than I was able to find. The idea of fertilizing the ocean has been looked into many times. At least 16 experiments have been conducted in the open ocean in the last few decades. The difference with this latest is it is apparently the first time a concept for doing so has shown to be feasible. Ocean fertilization, or ocean nourishment, if we can get it right, would be considered a form of geoengineering, where large-scale human intervention deliberately manipulates an environmental system. An international research team led by Michael Hoshella of the Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory engineered an iron-based fertilizer rich with other micro and macronutrients to seed parts of the surface of the ocean. Hoshella points out that we've fertilized the land to grow crops for centuries, increasing yields and speeding up natural processes. Maybe it's about time we figured out how to do so with the ocean as well. This was done near collections of phytoplankton in hopes it would feed them, encourage growth, and stimulate pulling carbon dioxide from the ocean. Then when they die, they will sink deep into the ocean and take the carbon with them. This would turn the phytoplankton into a carbon sink for us, taking it out of our atmosphere for thousands of years. The latest analysis article for this work can be found in the journal Nanotechnology. 
Now, this all sounds great, but to be fair, I looked for any denouncers of ocean fertilization, and I did find one. It wasn't a site I would normally use for a reference, but it did lead me to a single study that it was professing. This study at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, conducted in 2020, suggested that iron fertilization is unlikely to work. They say that their studies find that the Earth's oceans have just the right amount of iron and that adding more may not improve CO2 absorption at all, but could cause unwanted issues. They say that nothing we could do would ever be able to have a global impact. This comes from the MIT Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Science, and the lead author of the paper is Jonathan Lauderdale. Just to point out, though, while I was able to find the name of the lead author, the co-authors, the foundations which funded and or supported the study, and even the grants which were involved, I did not find anything that built on this. It doesn't appear to have been peer-reviewed, repeated, or published, and in the two years since it was released, I would have expected something to have happened to verify their findings. Obviously, I'm not a full-time researcher, and I very well could be missing something, so please, if you're aware of any follow-ups on this, let me know. I'd be interested to see if MIT researchers have reviewed this latest paper, and if their views have changed, or if they have challenges for it. So, while this most recent study sounds fantastic, it also still has to be replicated. I'll hopefully be able to do a follow-up on ocean fertilization and where we stand with that in a couple more years. Duke it out, researchers. That's what science is about. We have to value and respect falsifiability and let others try to debunk our results. That's how real truth is reached. There's no denying some pretty serious drought conditions in our future. Researchers from the Boyce-Thompson Institute and Cornell University have published some findings in planet physiology that may be the hope we need. Tomatoes were used for this initial study, and the purpose was to learn the effects of extended water stress on the fruit. They were able to identify a number of genes involved in the fruit's responses to water shortages, as well as which genes, if expressed, could help the fruit to flourish in these tough conditions. Next, they used their findings to treat plants and deprive them of water, and they had a greater recovery rate from simulated drought conditions than the controls they were compared to. This method is expected to also work on most fleshy fruits, such as grapes and apples. Plant breeders may be able to use this knowledge to develop fruit crops that will be able to adapt to the ever-worsening drought conditions ahead of us, and that's the kind of science that could actually save us, or at least give us more time to get our shit together. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My thanks goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project three years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my family, who are my world and my reason for existing. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 78 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. 
The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, under LTE Pod on Twitter, and it can now be found at LTE Pod on Hive, though I think it can still be found if you search Living Through Extinction there too. There is also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias.